I'm Rebecca Lavoie, and this is You Can't Make This Up. You Can't Make This Up is the podcast where we uncover the true stories behind your favorite Netflix documentaries and films. On today's episode, we take a closer look at the Netflix documentary film, Lover, Stalker, Killer. I don't feel blameless in all of this. A lot of bad things happen to good people, all because of a series of events that I'm at the center of. Today, we're talking to director Sam Hopkinson. Dave Krupa thought his relationship with Carrie Farver was low-key, but Carrie began sending threatening texts and emails. She even targeted Dave's ex-girlfriend, Liz Gallier. The stalking persisted for years, and while the trauma drew Dave and Liz closer, authorities could never track down Carrie for an arrest. But investigators tracing Carrie's digital footprints uncovered evidence that upended the case. The Netflix documentary Lover, Stalker, Killer looks into this bizarre tale of obsession and violence. Among the women in Dave's life, who could get away with years of online harassment? And who was willing to turn a romantic rivalry into murder? This could get to the point where someone gets seriously injured, murdered, and in the back of my head, I'm thinking, I've got to catch this person. I'm joined now by director Sam Hopkinson. Sam, welcome to You Can't Make This Up. Thank you. So how did you hear about the story of Dave Krupa and Liz Gollier? I heard about it from Curious Films, the nice folk of Curious Films who I made this film with, who had been researching the story for some time. I mean, obviously, it's a story that happened a while ago. It had been told in various different ways, but I suppose it had never been given a full premium feature documentary treatment. I think the feeling was that enough time had gone by, enough water under the bridge, that the people involved would be able to talk about it in, in a different way. And they spoke to the people involved and got a limited amount of access. And then I came on board. They told me the story. As a director, it's a story that I think any director interested in making thriller-type structured stories would be really interested in telling. So it was a bit of a no-brainer for me to jump on board. And then I guess from there, we then developed the story further and sought more access and the thing really began to take shape. So I want to talk about the three main people at the center of this story. Much of this centers on Dave and his four year long ordeal. Can you give me your impressions of Dave, you know, where he was at this point in his life when all this happened to him and and just sort of your, your general impressions of Dave? Yeah, I think he was a pretty similar character then than he is now, even though I, I think he's probably been, obviously been through a lot in the intervening time. But Dave is every man. He's the nicest guy you could probably meet, I think. I really enjoyed spending time with him. Um, and he's the kind of guy that you'd meet at a bar and instantly feel at ease with and friends with. And that interested me. I was starting over as a single person. It's a little bit lonely in a new place where you don't know anybody. So I got a job in the automotive industry, turn and wrench, because that's what I do. I got a little one-bedroom apartment. It was pretty nice. He's every man, and man being the operative word, I think, you know, it's, this is, his story is very much a man's story. It's about attraction. It's about attraction to women. It's about a man coming out of a long-term relationship, wanting to try and date again, having never used the tools of online dating. 
And that interested me as a man of how he navigated this world. I'm just curious about, you know, his first interaction with Liz, because obviously he does meet her on a dating app. He's new to the apps, as they say these days. I don't think we can speak to her motivations necessarily. We'll get into that in a minute. But can you sort of talk about what it was about her and what she claimed to be looking for that appealed to Dave and, and sort of what that relationship looked like to him? Um, she was very similar to Dave. She was out of a long-term relationship. She had two kids and she was looking for something with no strings attached. I think she came across that she was relatively new to the dating pool herself. So I can, I can imagine for Dave, that would have been non-threatening. Somebody who's diving into this with a bit of trepidation themselves also. You know, as he said, she loved motorcycles. He had a motorcycle. She was into heavy metal. He was into heavy metal. There were shared interests, but I also think it was where they were at that time in their life that brought them together. So he does have this chance encounter with Carrie Farver and then sees her uh, also in, in the dating pool. How would you describe that relationship? I mean, it was different than his relationship with Liz, right? I mean, it was very new, but also had sort of a different vibe. It had a different vibe. I think maybe it was more, I mean, they didn't meet online which meant that there was, it was maybe less no strings attached to it slightly. You know, I, I mean, I think it's really interesting. I think you can probably, never having really done the online dating thing, but I think you can really go for the, the hookups, the one night stands. It's harder to do when you're meeting people in person. So I think it's quite interesting in this case that he had met Carrie face to face before they got together. It's nothing we explore in the, in the film, but it's an interesting thing to think about. Yeah, he definitely sort of talks about that meeting a different way. You know, things definitely take a turn. It, it seems to all kind of be triggered when Liz shows up at his house when he's on that date with Carrie. But then Dave gets this series of text messages at work. Can you talk about what happens next right after that? Well, the text messages are very forward. They suggest that Carrie and Dave might move in together. And Dave's been playing the field slightly with these two women, and this is the last thing he wants to hear. The messages started slowly, but it ramped up. Meaner, ruder, more threatening as time went on. Why she would be harassing me, I, I just didn't get it. It effectively ends the relationship because Dave doesn't want this. And Dave's quite a upfront, blunt person. <laughs> And he says he doesn't want it. And she says, okay, screw you, I'm off. I suppose he doesn't think that's potentially going to happen, but it did. She was off. Hmm. So I want to transition to your filmmaking process for a minute because... The thing that grabbed me immediately about Lover, Stalker, Killer is that instead of getting an actor to do these recreations, as we very often see in true crime, you use Dave to play himself. We've seen this before, but it feels like it's usually in like quirkier or lower stakes documentaries like The Legend of Cocaine Island or The Pez Outlaw. And this isn't one of those stories. Can you talk about the discussions you had with your team about going in this direction, about having Dave play himself? Yeah, it's interesting. There were many discussions on many sort of levels, if you see what I mean. Initially, there was the simple filmmaking level, like, is this going to be a good thing? Is it going to help people suspend their disbelief even further? I mean, the danger of using actors is the audience sees an actor and they know it's not an actor and all of a sudden they're blown out of the moment. It can really destroy the moment in a documentary. The question was, is it going to be better if they're seeing the real person? I suppose on a very base level, can he act? 
The other big question about whether we used him in this way was, was it going to have an emotionally detrimental effect on him? Mm. You know, I mean, obviously you're asking somebody who has experienced something very traumatic in their life to relive it in a very literal way. You know, to the point where we were actually shooting in the same apartment complex where the stalking actually happened. You know, for the, obviously we wanted to do that for authenticity, but it meant we were going to be taking Dave back there um, and shooting with him there. And obviously this is something that we only got to when we knew Dave really quite well and we'd spent quite a lot of time with him hmm. and we'd spent a lot of time interviewing him. And we assessed it and thought this is probably something that he would be okay with. And then we talked to him about it. What did he say? He said, I think I'll be okay. You know, and then while it was there, obviously our duty, well, while he was there, while we were shooting it, our duty of care was obviously enormous. And we made it very clear that if he at all ever felt wrong or sort of emo too emotional about this, then we would stop. Of course, the actual experience of being there is not the same as it was originally because he's surrounded by lights and the film crew and everything. You, you know what I mean? Yeah, so actually, yeah. in the moment, it's, it is slightly different. But that said, you know, obviously on these films, we always offer psychological support, aftercare for, you know, for victims who are telling their stories in these films. And that was offered to him. Mm. You know, there's a huge difference between being the subject of an interview and, and acting. I mean, I have been the subject of many interviews and when I try to act, I do not know what to do with my hands, right? That's a, I think that's the experience a lot of people have. And what's striking in this is how good Dave is. You know, we see him drinking coffee in the diner, you know, working with a monkey wrench in the bay. He communicates a ton with his silence, you know, with his facial expressions. He seems to know what to do with his hands, <laughs> unlike me. Were you surprised uh, by the subtlety and depth of his performance? I don't know if I was surprised. I was certainly relieved because I, I realized when we were shooting that he could put it off. I mean, I think my technique as a director is, is to direct as little as possible, especially when you're working with non-actors. Dave was certainly very good at it and very game and sort of up for our approach. I mean, he was game. It was a quick love scene with Liz. I mean, that couldn't have been an easy conversation to have. That, and that, <laughs> yeah, that, I must say, actually. So this is, this is, okay. So um, in full, in the, in the interest of full disclosure. Okay, let me have it. There is an actor who Ooh, plays Dave. Okay. Um, it's not all Dave. Okay. When we decided that we were going to involve Dave in a lot of these, a lot of these kind of drama reconstruction scenes, we came up with a little bit of a, a rule for ourselves. If there was any interaction with the actor that played Liz or the actor that played Carrie, we would use the actor mm. and not the real Dave. To be honest, that was just one step too far. I think it was traumatic. And I think we wanted those scenes to be very much more abstract, the camera to be further back, to not see faces anyway. So the sex scene doesn't involve the real Dave. Okay. And, well, well done, uh, because I'll tell you, it was pretty seamless. Yeah, well, exactly. I mean, that's the, that's the trick of our game, really, is to make the actor not look like the actor, I suppose. And it, and it was doubly difficult because there was a lot of Dave on screen all the time. But they did eventually meet Dave and the actor because they were scheduled together on one day of filming. And um, they, they got on very well. As the shooting progressed, we referred to them as Dave and Stunt Dave. There you go. <laughs> he was a sort of stunt. <laughs> he was a stunt double. <laughs> 
we're going to put you in for all the all the trauma. You're doing the, the trauma stunt, Dave, and 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 regular nice Dave. I, I love that, <clears throat> and I love the responsible approach to this. That's a that's a rare and lovely thing. I will tell you, as somebody, I wasn't going to make him. I wasn't going to make him. Yeah. Really. Now, I am about to talk about spoilers, and we assume that people who've listened to this podcast have watched what we're talking about, but this is your last chance, if you have not seen this documentary, to hit pause for a minute, because there is a huge twist in this documentary a little more than halfway through. It is not Carrie who is behind the harassment. It has been Liz all along. Everything suggested Liz had been impersonating Carrie from the moment Carrie went missing. Every message that was sent to Dave, to Liz, to Nancy, to Max, came from Liz herself. We believe that Liz was the victim. It's not true. In fact, Liz is the stalker. Just like any mystery, if the viewer guesses it too soon, the reveal does not have the big impact that it's supposed to have. So I'm curious, as a director, how do you pull that off? Like, how worried were you about tipping your cards too soon in this film? You were always very worried. And the funny thing is, you don't know until you put it in front of people, to be honest. And I'd, I'd made a film a few years back called Misha and the Wolves, also on Netflix, that has a similar twist in the middle. I suppose the experience of that helped in that there are tools you can use. There are tools of misdirection. There are tools of convention that you lean on. All of these things helped, I hope, suspend people's disbelief up until the point of the twist. There's also a question of, in structure of a film like this, of timing, you know, when do you do the twist? Is it, it's got to be ripe enough, but you can't labour things too long. That was a big, big point for us when we were editing. But I think the key is misdirection. You have to imagine you're making the film where Carrie is the stalker, mm. if you see what I mean. Right. Almost any suggestion that she might not be, even if it's a suggestion, will set the hair running in the audience's mind and they'll get ahead of you. And that's the worst thing you want to do is to have the audience ahead of you in a film like this because you've lost. Right. So you always err on the side of caution, I would say. For a while, Nancy Rainey, Carrie's mother, wasn't in the film until after the twist. We were concerned that to put her in the film before the twist would almost give the twist away, if you see what I mean. Because Mm -hmm. her, you know, she has her own concerns about her daughter, like my daughter's not contacted me as her mother or, or she started to realise, even though she, she was getting contact from her daughter, even though it wasn't her daughter, it was actually Liz. Shortly after she left, they've started getting messages saying, I've taken a job in Kansas and I'm going to be making $100,000 a year. And Max, her son, had to stay with us. But we, we, we dearly wanted to work Nancy in before the twist, so actually that was something that was actually quite hard to do. So it just goes to show, in a way how powerful the tools and convention of documentary making are and how kind of responsible we have to be as the makers of the films because people believe you. Right. You know what I mean? Absolutely. So if you don't, so there is a danger then, there's a sort of ethical danger that if you don't tie up the loose ends by the end of the film, then you're sort of, you may be being dishonest. It is very clear by some of the text messages that Liz sent that she was watching Dave in real time, but no one was ever able to spot her. Was anyone ever able to figure out how she was able to pull that off, that level of just like close-up surveillance, but never getting caught? No. I mean, we talked to Dave quite a lot about it. And it's a little bit like when I talk about you managing to trick an audience in a film to believing something. I think 
in the same way Dave was tricked into believing by the sort of parameters of the situation, by the fact these text messages were coming in. I mean, there was a whole thing that she used an app that can send text messages and emails on a delay to two separate phones at the same time. Ah. At one stage, we went into this in more detail in the film, but it got cut out. But Liz was able to be at Dave's and have a text message come in to her phone from Carrie. Ah, oh, smart. See what I mean? And in yes. fact, it is sort of inferred in, the, in some of the drama sequences when she is at Dave's and, you know, she texts come in. Right. So she was very technically savvy. But again, I think Dave, he was caught in a sort of web of deception in which he didn't know which way to turn. So I think he would admit that he was quite manipulatable in this, in this situation. Right. Because she was always coming and going around this place. But there was one instance where she, he, he sort of caught her lurking behind a car in the parking lot of the apartment complex. He sort of said, oh, well, hi, what are you doing? And she was like, I just dropped my keys. And, and it was and it was only, which to us now, knowing the story, <laughs> makes you think, well, didn't you question it a bit further? But actually, in the moment, when you think this woman is your only connection in the world against a horrible stalker who's out there preying on both of you, then I think you're more willing to believe them. Yeah, it's confirmation bias, right? It's like exactly, right. exactly. Especially when you've seen text messages come in when you were with the person who is sending the exactly. text messages. Yeah, you know what's unusual is that even though she allegedly had been instant messaging her family, um, Carrie had walked out on her family. Did they ever believe that you know she took off on her own, or did they always suspect that there was something more nefarious going on? They didn't know. Yeah. So I don't think from the instant they thought there is something nefarious going on. I think they came to the conclusion relatively quickly, but were stymied by the fact that the police, the first investigators, not the investigators that we feature, but the first investigators had come to a very quick conclusion that Carrie had had some sort of a psychological episode to involving her bipolar disorder right. and she had just gone. And they, for them, that was enough. And they didn't push it further. And, and Nancy and Max were not happy about this. And they, they questioned it. And, you know, these things happened. And we, we learned later in the film that obviously Carrie's father had died, for example, and she didn't come to the funeral. There were, there were quite heavy clues to Carrie's family that something had happened that wasn't just as simple as her disappearing off by herself. Right. Of her own volition. Right. And those were falling on the deaf ears of the police. And that was a real sense of frustration. Um, so I do want to talk about these two cops, Jim Doty and Ryan Avis. Were you expecting that your two investigators would be such colorful characters? I mean, as a filmmaker, it's kind of a gift in some ways, right? It was, uh, I said, meeting Jim <laughs> and Ryan and Tony, yeah, we should add Tony into the uh, triumvirate. We shoot with a lot of cops, you know, and you, you've had lots of directors of true crime chat to you. And occasionally the investigators can all slightly merge into one mm. in a film. Yes, got guys in suits, same suit, weird tie, rumpled shirt. We see them over and over exactly. and over again. Yeah, exactly. That's not what these three guys were Exactly. At all. And so I met these guys and I thought all my Christmases had come <laughs> Me and Ryan were best friends. That was a good shot there, Ryan. Jim's the most Metro cowboy I've ever met. I don't think he's ever ridden a horse, but he pulls off the look. Ryan is more of a shoot-from-the-hip kind of guy. And then you work very hard to draw out those aspects of their character in the way you shoot them, you know, and it was very nice to sort of, and we, you know, they probably wouldn't mind me saying this, but, you know, 
I sort of had in my mind, I thought to delineate them with characters, I called them the cowboy, the dude, and the nerd. And <laughs> these are their characters, and this is how we're going to paint them. And that, that, that is their characters, you know what I mean? But you, you approach it as you write the maker of a fiction film or a, the writer of a novel, that you draw out aspects of people to make them seem more rounded. It was a joy to do with those three lovely men. Yeah. I mean, their character establishment was really quick. You have, uh, you know, one guy saying he's a Metro cowboy. You have Tony Kava saying, I'm drinking Soylent. <laughs> That's like all you need to say about him, right? Um, and they kind of did your lifting for you in so many yeah. ways. It's so lovely. I, I want to go back to Liz for a second because... I don't think this is a question you can answer, but I'm curious to know your opinion. She went to extremes to keep up this facade that, you know, she's being harassed by Carrie. They're both being harassed by Carrie. Do you think her motivation, you know, was to hide the murder or was it to also or more so to solidify this relationship with Dave? Because it seems like the relationship with Dave was very much at the center of her mind before Carrie's disappearance, too. Yeah, you're absolutely right. It was a dual motivation in the way she kept up the facade, I suppose, or the, the guise of Carrie. Obviously, to keep her alive meant that the cops wouldn't be chasing her for murder. And to keep her alive and hostile to her and Dave kept her and Dave together. And Dave says, again, it was more in the film at one point, but we hope that it comes across in the film that every time uh, Liz and Dave grew apart a little bit, something quite violent would happen to Liz from Carrie that would bring them back together mm. because Dave would come to Liz's rescue because Dave obviously felt very guilty that he'd brought Carrie into Liz's life. Yeah. So it was, in a sense, it was sort of arch manipulation of a romantic relationship with a dual motivation that as long as it went on and there was a sense that Carrie was alive, the police wouldn't be looking her, for her in a murder case. How shocked were you at sort of the apex of that when she burns her own house down and lets her own pets die? Pretty shocked. Pretty shocked, I think. <laughs> it's pretty despicable. I mean, she's already... Uh, even yeah. more so when she shoots herself. But, yeah. I mean, you know, it's... Uh, I mean, I was pretty shocked. And, and, and it's, as the prosecutor in the film echoes, how are people going to believe that someone's done this? Right. What about my uh, animals? The animals? Are... I know that they are all dead, but... The Humane Society is going to take care of the animals. Sorry. I just wish you would go away. But it, it just sh shows the extreme to which her obsession with Dave went. You know, because it was, again, the fire is something that brought him right back to her. Right. The shooting right. to some extent as well. Well, I want to talk about the shooting because she stole Dave's gun and used it to shoot herself in the leg. Do we know why she chose that particular moment in time to do this? Was this a, a misdirection on her part kind of moment? Well, I, I think it was, again, there's a dual motivation. I think that she, she was desperate for Dave's sympathy. But I also think at that time she was wanting to pin it on Amy Flora, who's Dave's ex, who Dave still, you know, had an ongoing relationship with because they were parents of the same children. Right. And there was an element of jealousy from Liz there. When I think things were starting to unravel and she thought it's going to be quite hard for me to claim that Carrie's still alive and this has all been Carrie, I'm going to pin it on Amy. Yeah. But the shooting actually provides an opportunity for investigators. It gives them the chance to start goading her. Can you talk a little bit about that? 
Yeah, I mean, this was a very difficult aspect of the story to tell because it is actually incredibly confusing. Because after this shooting, she started to pin the shooting of herself and also the murder of Carrie on Amy, she was controlling Amy's emails. She was emailing in Amy's name. The police came up with this ruse where they wanted to get as much information from Liz about what Amy had done because they knew that Liz was actually writing to herself in Amy's name in the hope that she, in Amy's name, would write to herself telling herself in Amy's name what she had actually done to Carrie. It's, if anyone's listening to this, they're not going to want to watch the film. They're going to think it's so confusing. No, it's, mean, it's, it's, it's incredibly confusing. And it took a long time to <laughs> uh, structure those sort of um, elements of the story to clarify exactly what was going on. Well, that, that actually, uh, ultimately, it was more, it was actually what they were doing was even more complex. We have simplified it slightly in the telling because otherwise it would be almost impossible to know what was going on. Well, essentially, they're, they're basically goading her and they're saying, well, if only there were proof of X and then wouldn't you know it, she's, uh, she gets them email proof of X, but she is actually the yeah. one who's constructed yeah, yeah, that yeah. email yeah. and she's sophisticated yeah. enough to mostly fabricate IP addresses that could be from anywhere. And that actually leads me to a question because I'm sure you didn't do all this yourself, but you ha- must have had a tremendous amount of printed material or, or print material to look at emails, text messages, so forth. Was that a giant puzzle figuring out which of, you know, which of these elements to use as visuals in the film? Because I'm sure yeah. there were thousands of yeah, them, right? Yeah, it always is with, with these things. I mean, you know, it helped that, that the police would, as you would imagine, Tony Carver is incredibly um, fastidious in terms of uh, <laughs> documenting and, and arranging all of this stuff. And, and he very kindly sort of gave us his indexed versions of it, which meant we could work through it. Yeah. But it's always the case in in documentaries like this. When I made Fear City, we had hours and hours and hours and hours and hours of those mafia record the FBI mafia recordings, and hours and hours of transcripts that didn't match the recordings. For, and it was it was like and so a lot of the work when you're doing one of these things is to sort of sift through all the material and get to the sort of the essence, the nub. What are the text messages? What are the emails that are going to really land with an audience? You know, because this was ongoing for years. Right. Right. So they arrest Liz, they charge her with murder, even though they don't have Carrie's body. From a legal standpoint, there was a lot of worry there, right? I mean, because it's challenging to prove that someone's death is a homicide. It's a no, but as they say, yeah. a no body case. Right. And, you know, any prosecutor will tell you they're always the hardest because how do you prove it? You're, it's right. going to be circumstantial evidence. And this had heaps of circumstantial evidence, but ultimately... The judge was convinced. And, and, and it's something we don't go into in the film because we sort of felt that in the investigation, by the time we get to the end of the investigation, you as a viewer probably have the sense that she's banged to rights. Mm-hmm. She's going to go down. So we didn't go through all of the information in the investigation again in the trial sequence because it, it would have felt repetitious. But there is something interesting about the trial, which is that it was not a jury trial. Right. And uh, as you watched, I think in a way we tried a sleight of hand. We didn't want to have to explain why, but uh, it's something that I didn't know. But any defendant has a right to waive their right to a jury. Correct. It's called a bench trial. Bench trial. Right. And have the judge make the decision of guilt or not guilt. And the reason this was done, and Liz's defence lawyer was was a very colourful guy, no longer alive. But the reason he did it was he was just scared they'd find a body. 
he wanted to claim circumstantial evidence and not enough circumstantial evidence and do it as soon as possible. Obviously, it didn't work. But I think the other thing I want to say about the trial and the trial sequence in the film is that we felt that because we got to the point with the investigators that we'd revealed all the information that shows her essentially to be the murderer. Right. We wanted the trial then to be about Nancy. We wanted, and I think, you know, it's really important doing any of these, this kind of film to remember that there are victims. And we wanted to tell the story of the victims. We weren't really interested in glorifying a murderer, telling a sort of evil genius story and have people sort of wonder, you know, the dubious talents of Liz Gollier. Yeah. And we wanted to make the trial sequence about Nancy, uh, Carrie's mother. Mm. And she genuinely didn't know what had happened to Carrie until the trial. And so to have to hear that was heartbreaking for her. Mm. Having to hear that Carrie had been stabbed, for one thing, just... It's your child. You just don't... That's not something that you ever... I guess it's a nightmare. And I think, and we haven't talked about Nancy much, and I would like to because... Sure, yeah, go ahead. I'd I'd love to hear about your impressions of Nancy and and how important she was to, you know, the making of this. She was absolutely key to this film. And she has spoken before in the past about this case. She doesn't like speaking about it. It's still very raw for her. We were really hoping that she would be involved in our film because we felt that it would be the right kind of film if she was involved, i.e. one that makes the viewer understand the pain and suffering that the biggest victim in this, i.e. Carrie and her family, went through. Right at the time she went missing, Carrie's father was dying. In my mind, she would never have left because her dad was so sick. Two weeks, three weeks after he passed, I had this very vivid dream about him. And in that dream, it said, Nance, she's with me. It's okay. She was incredibly brave to come in front of our cameras and tell her story. And I thought she did it incredibly eloquently with dignity. And for me, her involvement transformed the film into something that I wanted it to be. And we all wanted it to be as the filmmakers. And her story of the trial, her testimony at the end, always has me in tears. As somebody who watches a lot of true crime and, you know, I believe transparency was completely unfamiliar with this story. So I was completely drawn in and the twist was an amazing twist for me. There is this moment of like dread when you see the person has been caught and then you see them in the interrogation room and you are afraid they're going to get away with it. Right. Because she's just denying, denying, denying. There is this incredible twist in the case when Dave finds this old tablet that he has and the tablet just happens to have this SIM card with these photos on it. That turn in the case, it is truly extraordinary because they at, they thought to ask for it. He found it, but then it also had her photos on it. Can you just like talk about that turn and how important that was? It had the smoking gun on it. Didn't right. it? They had an image of a bit of Carrie's body and an identifiable bit of Carrie's body. There is a drawing right there that shows that this is where the veins are in the foot. And there is something that happens post-mortem called venous marbling, where uh, these veins become visible. And I thought, you know, all of a sudden, we're seeing a picture of a dead body. So it was what the prosecutors needed. 
it was more solid evidence and undoubtedly it was the thing that made sure that she was found guilty. Mm. You know, it's interesting, Dave and Liz would always, you know, they were both gamers. They would hang out, play games on, they had tablets, they would play tablet games. I think they'd swap SIM cards and stuff, you know, for various reasons that might have stuff on. I amazing that that SIM card ended up there and amazing the sort of process that the uh, Tony Carver used to draw the information down off it. And, and just as a, speaking sort of selfishly, as a, a director, a wonderfully sort of exciting double twists, uh, you know, detective type story to, to end the film with. Yeah. I mean, you foreshadow the importance of that tattoo uh, on her foot in the, in the reenactment early in the film. And it's visible when the actress approaches Dave and it's like a little moment that you kind of remember. And that is the only proof, right, that Carrie is gone, is that is that detail. It really is, because, I mean, it would be very easy to claim that this image, which, I mean, it barely looks like a foot, yeah. but why would it be her foot? So I'm curious, Sam, this is clearly a tragic story and it is clearly a shocking story, but I'm wondering what you want viewers to take away from Lover, Stalker, Killer when they stream it on Netflix, because a lot of people are streaming this on Netflix as we talk about it. I mean, it was a case that we all became quite emotionally involved in, if you see what I mean, even though it was one that happened in the past. You know, we spent a lot of time with the people, with the victims of it, Dave and Nancy. And I was struck by how Dave was drawn in as a man who's, you know, kind of dated women. You get drawn in, you're, the wool is pulled over your eyes, can easily be pulled over your eyes. You know, love is blind. And I, I think to some extent, it's quite universal in that sense. And I hope both, you know, men and women, I suppose, watching it, something will chime with them there and a plea for people not necessarily to trust mm. everything they hear, believe and see online. And I think from the, the other thing that it was important for the film to do and for people to sort of take away from it, really, was for it to be a kind of fitting tribute, I suppose, to Carrie and her memory. And I think there's something really interesting in this case you know the trial happens it's clear in that trial that Carrie has been killed what's really important then in that trial is that Liz is found guilty then the memory of Carrie is freed from the characterization of a nasty stalker you know somebody who turned their back on their family and that family had sort of suffered in the local community people had got the wrong idea about their daughter they'd believed the stories that were going around about the fact that she'd sort of gone mad and she'd, she was stalking these people and, you know, threatening violence and threatening murder and, and all of these things. And the trial sort of reclaimed the character of Carrie for the family. And I'd love to think that the film does the same thing. Hmm. Well, Sam Hopkinson, thank you so much for giving me your behind-the-scenes insights uh, into Lover, Stalker, Killer. It is a fascinating and riveting documentary, and I really enjoyed watching it. I know that lots of people are watching it now, too. Thanks so much for coming on the podcast. Thank you. That's it for this week's episode. Thanks again to Sam Hopkinson. For more of my takes, check out my other podcast, Crime Writers On!, each week on that show, we break down the latest in true crime documentaries, TV shows, podcasts, and pop culture. If you like You Can't Make This Up, please rate and review this show and share it with your friends. Find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you're listening right now. And make sure to follow the show to stay tuned for all new episodes. 
You Can't Make This Up is a production of Netflix. I'm Rebecca Lavoie. Thanks so much for listening. 